Hello and welcome to another episode of the A-Leagues of Our Own podcast presented by the Inner Sanctum. 100,000 people packed the stands in Perth this week as the Matildas cruised through the second round of Olympic qualification. 60,000 at Optus Stadium was the highlight as the Tillys put eight past the Philippines in what Tony Gustafsson described as the best attacking performance he'd seen during his time in charge. Joining me today to wrap up all the action is Chris McPherson. Good afternoon. Afternoon, Lockie. Hello, Pletty. Good afternoon. All right, let's get stuck in, shall we? Philippines nil, Matildas eight. And Pletty, you and I talked last Friday about the Matildas being a lot braver in that game against Iran and they were more willing to play through and they well and truly bore the fruit of that style of play in this game against the Philippines, particularly for that first goal, which for me was the best of the lot. I mean, it was a fantastic performance, no matter which way you want to slice it, dice it, cut it up, grind it, you know, however you want to, however you want to look at it. Um, Tony, Tony Gustafson clearly came in with the game plan and that was, you know, obvious from the get go, which was full strength squad. You know, those European players have been in camp, for, you know, for almost a week at that point, as opposed to the couple of days just before the, just before the Iran game. Um, and he knew he had to run up the, run up the scoreboard. Uh, to make sure that they finish as the best case, uh, best placed qualifier uh, because of the qualification system. Um, and, well, I think a lot of us at halftime were going, okay, Tony, you've made your point. Get them off now. We don't need injuries. <laughs> it left them on and Sam Kerr made it, was it five or six just after halftime? Just literally not even 30 seconds, slots at home. And it's like, okay, you've made your point, Tony. Please, we can't afford an injury. And... You know, this wrapped up another couple of goals before players started getting pulled off, or it might have been the seventh before players started getting pulled off. But and given the second game we're going to talk about, might not have been the worst idea to keep players on in hindsight. Um, <laughs> you know, Tony Gustafson doesn't get paid in hindsight; he gets paid in the then and the now, and he knew what he wanted to do. And uh, Kerr and Ford both got a hat trick, and Claire Wheeler got her first international goal with an absolute walloping of a strike. And for me, that one was the best one of the lot. And my Claire Wheeler bias may have a little bit to do with that. <laughs> Chris, uh, Tony Gustafsson mentioned uh, in the post-game press conference, he thought that this was a real crossroads kind of moment in terms of the way that Matildas, you know, go into games against teams that are going to sit back. They're going to park the bus, you know, playing against these park buses, as he called it. Do you see it in a similar kind of vein? I think it certainly shows, you know, some intent from Tony and, and the way they went about it. I guess the, 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 query for it is is does this change that approach that teams will now have in terms of knowing that they can't just park, park the bus and strangle an attacking threat you know with the likes of Kerr at the front of it so I think that really will put that doubt in other teams minds as we head further through and into the next round of qualification which we'll get to in a little bit that that's not going to be a structure that's going to work against the Matildas very well um, admittedly a lot of things went right for it to get to eight but they were comfortable in it as Paletti touched on in that first half it was Fairly convincing, and um, they maybe took the foot off the throat a touch in the second half, although no one obviously told Sam Kerr as she came flying out of the gates at half time. Absolutely. And Caitlin Ford as well. She got the hat trick, and I think it was four assists as well on the day, which is a crazy goal contribution record. And Paletti, you say we had, you know, players come on. Claire Wheeler gets her first goal for the Matildas, which she looked very impressed about. And it was, um, it was a great day in front of 60,000 people. That crowd at Optus Stadium, we talked about it last week. Yes, it's an oval, but it was pretty cool to have that many people watching the Matildas. 
Yeah, it was. I mean, three goals. Uh, I think it was three assists, or even if it was four assists, you know, three goals, four assists. Those are those are Connor McDavid-like numbers for the Edmonton Oilers. You know, it's very hard to get to that sort of thing. It's it, it's it's absolutely fascinating. And you know, you mentioned the crowd, and I think I was one of those, you know, critical of the decision to make the move. And I can understand why you know Football Australia made it, why you know the AFC you know, allowed it to go to a non-rectangular stadium. Because they basically sold it out, right? I think if we're having a you know discussion where it's okay, they've drawn forty thousand on a Sunday afternoon. That's fantastic, but that's not a sellout. I think it had to be to the sellout for for it to be a success for me. Otherwise, you're looking at a situation where it's like, yeah, you've got an extra twenty thousand people in, but at what cost? You're taking away from that intimate atmosphere. But the fact that you had the entire joint packed out, you know, made it much better. Well, there's a curious question about where we're going to play the next round of qualification. So Australia will play Uzbekistan home and away in February of next year to decide which of those two teams will qualify for the Olympics. And in terms of where Australia's going to host that game, Chris, it seems uh, the MCG is getting a little bit of attention. Yeah, they've talked that the MCG might be the solution. But again, I'm with Paletti. I if we can find a rectangular stadium, and obviously there are some, and the Melbourneites who listen in might not like this angle, but there's certainly some rectangular stadiums with larger capacities, predominantly in Sydney. Um, but even some of those Melbourne ones that can get the, the mid-30s, those sorts of, you know, the Amy Parks of the world, we need to be having a look at that. I think the intimate atmosphere, if you could get, I mean, the Olympic Stadium in Sydney would be perfect because um, it gives us that capacity to have, you know, upwards of 80,000 people there while still keeping that rectangular ground, which is going to get it over the top. The MCG, we've seen it before, packed out for the Socceroos. And look, it still has a pretty awesome atmosphere, but there's just something about playing at a rectangular ground that just adds that extra dimension. The crowd's on top of it. And I know I wouldn't want to be going over to Uzbekistan and playing at a rectangular ground where there's you know, 60, 70, 80,000 Uzbekistanis baying for Australian blood. And I'm sure Uzbekistan would say the same. Um it's probably easier and more comfortable 100,000 at the MCG where they're removed a bit versus 80,000 at the Olympic Stadium in Sydney where they're on top of you. So the, the curious thing about the Olympic Stadium is Taylor Swift will finish her Sydney leg of her world tour on the 25th of February. So I don't, I don't know if three days is enough time to turn that stadium around, but all of a sudden you're probably looking at maybe Sydney Football Stadium or Suncorp as the two best rectangular options. Um you know, given all the hype around the Matildas, you know, uh, Coopers and Amy are probably ruled out maybe for this window in, in Football Australia's eyes. So, Pauletti, are you taking maybe 40,000 at one of those stadiums or would you rather 100 if they could sell it out at the MCG? Don't put football at the MCG. I know it creates a fantastic atmosphere when it's sold out, but at the end of the day, it is an oval stadium. Most are so far away from the pitch that it just looks like, you know, squiggly dots running around, right? It's it's not great, but, you know, there's also every chance it's not going to be available. It's not going to be ready because of Taylor Swift. That's that's the other question. It's the same problem you run up here in Sydney, the 80-odd thousand, you know, capacity Olympic Stadium, because it's not just the three or four dates that she's doing. It's the fact that the, um, what do they call it, like, like the slip-proof tiling that they put on the ground, um, you know, that's there for three or four days in advance. And then you've got the stages going in and all the speakers going in and all the preparation going in. So the grass is covered by external equipment for almost a week. And then there's the pack down aspect of it and getting everything up. 
it's going to be such a tight turnaround. And the reality is the grass is going to be damaged. And it's the same problem with the MCG. And you know what? I'm sorry, MCG, but when it comes to Australian football, we're never getting back together. Oh. <laughs> the one, the one uh, that we haven't touched on is Dockland Stadium. Does give an availability. Obviously, it's Melbourne, so you know, Paletti, you and I, uh, being New South Welshmen, would uh, love to have a little bias on it. But it's it's still similar size. Again, it's not perfectly rectangular, but then again, technically, it's neither neither is Olympic Stadium uh, in Sydney, Stadium Australia. So it, it, it would have to come into consideration if they were to move to that rectangular focus, wouldn't it? Uh, I think it would, if not for the unfortunate fact that another pop star is is performing on it the next day in pink, I believe, at least. I'm definitely not across the uh, the, the, the tour, touring American girl bands like you are, Lucky. <laughs> so that, that rules that out. I, I mean... You almost have to go Suncorp, don't you? 52,500. We saw what they did you know, when they were in Brisbane for the game against Nigeria. It was sold out. It was packed. I was there. I was literally sitting at the very top of the grandstand last seat. I literally had the wall behind me. But it, it was a great it was a great view. It was a great spot. I absolutely loved it. And I think, I think I'd go, like, if you put me in that seat again for this game, I'd be very happy. And I think that's the same question you have to ask with the Sydney Football Stadium as well is – it's like Suncorp has the extra capacity. I think you take that. I think you put it in the biggest ground available that's going to best suit Australian conditions. And I'm sorry, like for me, that's not with, you know, Taylor Swift coming. That's not the Olympic Stadium. That's not the MCG. It's not Adelaide Oval. It's not Optus Stadium. Like, I'm sorry, 60,000 is great, but I'd rather have 52 and a half at a rectangular stadium. But that's just me. I think I think the, the piece is that answers this for me, Paletti, is if, if this game's at the MCG... I'm not moved to get on a plane and fly to Melbourne to watch it. If it's at Suncorp Stadium, a bit like yourself, I'm moved to consider and work out a way that I can get to Brisbane because I know that experience as a fan is going to be huge. So I can only imagine what it means for the players. I'll drive up. You can get in the car with me. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> It'll be very interesting. I think my tip is definitely Suncorp at this point. But if Football Australia think they can sell out the MCG, I, I wouldn't be surprised. If just as a one-off and then maybe next year they go back to the rectangles. But... Just on that, we, we all remember 1997, right? Is this, this, could, this could unfortunately be our 1997 moment if the field is in any way damaged by Taylor Swift, which is a distinct possibility. I'd hate for it to be a loose bump that knocks us out of the Olympics, much like, you know, uh, uh, what was it? The spectator jumping the fence, you know, was likely responsible in, in its way for stopping all the momentum the Socceroos had in 97. So... I don't, I don't want to jinx it, Paletti, but even worse so, that loose piece of turf sees Mary Fowler, Sam Kerr, Caitlin Ford do an ACL or something. Ooh. And that's not a, you know, what that would look like. That So, again, is it worth the risk? You know, vote, vote one vote one Suncorp Stadium, it sounds like. All right, there you go. We've decided. We'll, uh, we'll move on to last night then, shall we? And uh, Matilda's three, Chinese Taipei nil. And Chris, it, it took a Mary Fowler absolute rocket to get the initial breakthrough against a fairly re, uh, resilient opposition in the first half, but reasonably comprehensive in a game where we were already qualified before a ball had been kicked, but still needed to get the job done. Yeah, it certainly, look, you felt at half time that we should have managed to find a way under the score sheet. Chinese Taipei just kept finding ways to dig things out, or we found ways to not penetrate uh, and get on the scoreboard, but... That second half, we uh, got a little bit more clinical in our finishing. It's interesting. We finished with more shots on target in this game than we did in the game against the Philippines. Um, so to put that in perspective, 13 shots on target versus 12, three goals versus eight, it just shows that 
you know, sometimes it's the, the, the uh, defenders and the shot stoppers contributing to that or depending on where, where you're firing the mat. But I think, again, that second half will fill Tony Gustafsson and, and the Matildas with a lot of confidence heading into this next stage and where we next go with the games against Canada in between as well. Uh, it, it's a piece that we probably need to be reviewing that first half, though, I think, just to see where we maybe fell down in terms of not converting opportunities as a Matildas squad because there's obviously some some pieces there. But as you say, it was great to see Mary Fowler opening the scoring with that absolute screamer. And then we had our little Travis Kelsey moment where they flashed a Nathan Cleary <laughs> in the crowd. Um, you know, it all ties back to Taylor Swift. It does. Everything goes back to Taylor Swift. Plenty, I'm not sure how much of a believer you are in the whole XG theory, but the Matildas had, you know, like 2.17, I think it was, at least by Opta at halftime. So the chances were there, maybe not putting them away, but the result was never really in doubt. Uh, look, it, the, that first half, the reality is the Matildas couldn't hit a barn door, right? And I, I, I made the joke at halftime. I said, um, I said, right, we need to get, we need to for the second half, we need to get Bozzer out there in his truck with a giant goal, just moving around the ground like that old, um, like the old A League ad from Fox Sports. Like it looked like for a while that might have been the only way that the Matildas were going to were going to find the back of the net. Look, the second half, very clinical, hit the score sheet as soon as that first one went in. There was absolutely no doubt that the Matildas were going to go and uh, go on with the job. They just needed to get that confidence behind them of getting one. I mean, look, overall, I don't think I can pick this apart too much. Uh, to answer your question, I'm not a huge believer in XG, and I've made my views clear on this. I think that it's an incomplete science at this stage. I know there are plenty of people that you know rave about it, but like, given where a lot of the funding issues are, I find it hard to believe that Australian domestic football and international football in this case has the right computer generation software to accurately map it. Fair enough. Chris, you're a non-believer as well. Yeah, look, again, whenever you involve humans in these things, it's where the error creeps in. As Pallotti said, uh, it'd be a much more accurate guide if it was all uh, computer generated and you know we utilise the technology and AI as things evolve. I'm sure it will get uh, more accurate. Uh, but at the moment, it's a, it's a sort of, you know, finger in the air and which way is the wind going? It's not the most accurate of measuring tools. It is a measuring tool, but yeah, it's certainly a piece, but it, it does draw that parallel. But I think the, the naked eye could tell that, you know, we'd probably un- under-delivered on goals. I think one of the things we've probably overlooked is, again, playing against teams that are probably a couple of rungs down the ladder, but the defensive efforts, um, I think a total of less than 10 shots allowed across the three games. So that just, again, shows how hard the girls are working through that midfield and defensive area to ensure that the other sides weren't penetrating. And, you know, we've been in that situation before where teams that are lower down the world rankings than us have maybe surprised us or we've taken them a little lightly. So I think that was a real positive to come out of the whole series here. Um, We dominated possession and and in doing so really limited those opportunities. So I think there's always a focus, and especially with some of the scorelines in these games, on on the attacking piece. But I think that piece on on how solid our defensive unit was is, is something that can't be underestimated as well. There were three Matildas that were withdrawn from the squad before this game, of course. Ellie Carpenter and Emily Van Egmond returned to their club sides, whilst Paletti Courtney Vine unfortunately withdrawn due to injury, and she will now miss the Women's AFC Club Championship with Sydney FC. That hurts. It absolutely does, especially given that Sydney FC are a little bit light um, in terms of options on the right wing. Look, if it was me and I'm Ante Juric, for this club championship, I'm sticking Abby Lemon at right wing. I know there's other more definitive forwards, but I think Abby Lemon provides a lot down the right. And we've seen her play at right back. Defensive stocks, we know, are a little bit of a problem with Sydney, although they have signed um, 
they did sign Jessica Seaman, uh, who most recently played with Bulls FC Academy in the NPL New South Wales women's competition. And I believe she's making the trip over um, based on what Sydney FC put on their website this morning. Uh, and they've also signed uh, Kaylee Talon Henniker, uh, who was part of the squad as a train-on player, I believe, uh, based on the article Sydney FC put out uh, a couple of hours ago at the time of recording. So, again, Talon Henniker was with Football News Wales Institute uh, this past season as well. She's young, she's quick, she's ambitious. I think it's a decent replacement. I would probably leave her on the bench. And as I said, I'd start Abby Lemon on the right. And, you know, you got Fiona Wirtz, you got Shay Connors, but they both do their best work centrally. And Princess Savini does her best work on the left. I'm not suggesting Arte go to a front four, but I think if you were to stick with the front front three, uh, for me, it's Abby Lemon or Daylight, the way I, the way I see it. Tony Gustafsson has uh, been linked with another role, of course, the the US women's national team job. And Chris, he didn't seem too committal when he was asked about it after the game. He said he still has work to do with the Matildas and he seemed quite optimistic about how they're progressing. But the US women's national team is the most successful women's team in the history of football. If they weren't chasing after him, it would be hard to turn down, right? Yeah, it'd certainly be something you'd have to consider as a career progression in you know the the pathway that he's on, but again, it's very non-committal. I, I have so many doubts at the moment after how we got jaded on the rugby union side of things with Eddie Jones recently. So, <laughs> um, you know, national team coaches telling us and you know non-committally saying, "Oh no, you know, like I've still got things to do here." I mean, Eddie Jones definitely wasn't going, definitely wasn't going, definitely wasn't going, and then he did go. Uh, I hope it's not the same for Tony Gustafsson, but you know, it's not that long ago that people were calling for his head in the lead up to the World Cup. So. It's amazing what a few months can do. And again, the shoe could be on the other foot if we lose a uh, two-legged um, playoff to Uzbekistan. They, they may be calling for his head again and he may willingly go to the US or the US might not be interested. It's a fickle game being a, uh, a national team manager or being any manager. So I certainly couldn't begrudge him if he did take that chance and, and head it over to lead the number one side currently. Uh, and again, they're looking for some improvement after their World Cup. Paletti, assuming everything does go smoothly and the Matildas get through to the Olympics and everything like that, could you see him wanting a change? I mean, his contract expires at the end of the Olympics. So if that, I believe that means um, if they fail to make the Olympics, he might be let go early. I mean, I know there's an international window in there somewhere. You know, maybe you give an interim role if he doesn't want to sign back on. I mean, I was reading. Um, I was reading an athletic article uh, last week when it was announced that you know uh, that the U.S. women's national team, uh, you know, the federation to come up with a shortlist uh, with Gustafson's name on it was that he wasn't quite committal. I believe in making the move, um, you know, to the United States full time, and that was one of the things that happened here was he wasn't quite committal in moving to Australia. I could see that being an issue with the Federation just because a lot of the US players are still based domestically. And I know, you know, technology is wonderful and whatnot, but there's only so much you can grasp by watching a screen as opposed to watching them, in, you know, in, 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 in the flesh uh, week in, week out. I think, I think it's the fact that the US have such a short list of names willing to take the job or talent that they've identified. And I know Joe, uh, Joe Montemuro is also on that list, another Australian. I'm not going to pretend like I know a whole lot about Montemuro at club level. Um, I know he's done done well with Arsenal. He's done well with Juventus. I'd like to see the Matildas keep Tony Gustafsson if he can do well at the Olympics. Um, 
and that's not to say that a change is needed if they don't win a trophy or a medal of some description. But maybe, like, because the reality is Football Australia has a budget as well. And getting a coach as good as Gustafsson in on the budget they have could be a problem. The last thing we would want is as we get towards the back end of this uh, golden generation, if you want to call it that, with the Sam Kerr as the Caitlin Fords, is for that to be not as good as it could be because they don't have the right coach in. We saw the twenty uh, the twenty nineteen World Cup. They uh, they had Ante Milicic in, and it was not the greatest of performances. Four years later, third place playoff. And I'm not suggesting that it was all Gustafsson because it wasn't. But you can't deny there was a significant impact there because Milicic already had one eye on the Macarthur FC job at that point, and he was just a stopgap until they could get the next coach in. I don't want to say that that was a wasted World Cup, but like quarters were there for the taking, and the Matildas couldn't do it in twenty nineteen. So I'd hate to see this talent wasted. Okay, in other news now, the Football Australia have announced they will not bid for the 2034 Men's World Club, clearing the way for Saudi Arabia as the only bidders for the tournament. And Chris, you and I were talking about this. It seemed like the logical thing to do in the you know political landscape that Football Australia have to operate in now. Uh, but turning that focus to the 2026 Women's Asian Cup and the 29, uh, 29 Club World Cup as well is still a good result. It certainly is, and I think it's the reality of the situation. It would have been wonderful to go and try and chase that World Cup, but the reality was, and you read between the lines and the writing on the wall, and FIFA clearly have a desired outcome there, and that seems to be pointing in the way of Saudi Arabia. Uh, Australia could have made some noise and been the noisy neighbour, but at the end of the day, that's just going to get us offside with a lot of other entities and a lot of people in FIFA. It's horrible that that's the way of the world, but the dollars talk, as we've seen in a lot of other sports, so save our own dollars and target some things that are you know, much more in our wheelhouse. And um, look, I'm pretty excited if we were to get both of those. We've seen uh, um, what the options are that present. Like the, the World Cup for the women was amazing to um, solely host the Asian Cup would be great. And to have the Club World Cup, if you start thinking about the sides that are going to be involved in that, how phenomenal it would be to have those teams and those players on our doorstep. You're, you're essentially having the majority of the stars from the World Cup anyway, so it would be really exciting. Yeah, I think as the 32-team format of this Club World Cup evolves... Uh, that's going to be a really underrated tournament moving forward. And if Australia could snap up one of the first few of those, I think that would be a big scalp from the FA. Finally, now Melbourne City have announced they've parted ways with head coach Rado Vizicic. Aurelio Vidma, the Socceroos legend, will take over. And Paletti, just your first little uh, impressions on this decision? I mean, I've seen a lot of uh, I've seen a lot of out of context clips pop up from past Aurelio Vidmar, uh, uh, your press conferences and whatnot. Um, <laughs> it's nice to revisit the past. Look, I, I think they were going nowhere under Rado Vidicic and going nowhere fast. And look, I like Rado as a person. I'll make that clear. Every interaction I've ever had with him has been wonderful, whether that's in press conferences, whether that's running into him, you know, in the stands at games. His style didn't necessarily translate to what Melbourne City wanted to do. It also wasn't necessarily his fault. Um his tactics were a little bit how you doing, but you got to remember he lost Andrew Nabu on the eve of the season, season-long injury. Half his squad was turned over. He took over six weeks into last season after uh, Kis Norbo went to go to France. Yes, he gets batted in the grand final, but the talent is also there. That there's kind of not really an excuse for the start that City have had, um, and I think I guess it's better to ease the pain now and make the transition as opposed to. Six weeks into the season, international breaks already gone past. 
and they're still sitting, you know, well outside the six with a lot of ground to catch up over the next 20 weeks. So, right decision. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I also agree with it at the same time, if that makes sense. We'll be back on Tuesday. We'll talk more about that and the weekend of A-League competition coming up. But that will do for this episode of the A-Leagues of our own podcast. We are on social media, Twitter, or X if you want to call it that. Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, Pick Your Poison. Chris McPherson, thank you. Thanks, Lockie. Thank you, Bloody. Thank you for having me again. Thank you all for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.